Hello, and welcome to the InfoLinks on the Record podcast. I'm Kurt Teese, and I'm Olivia Winkler. And on today's episode, we're doing a virtual data privacy roundtable. As most of you can imagine, we are in the middle of the COVID-19. And in fact, since we're broadcasting on March 26th, we're not really sure if we're in the middle or where we are, but we appreciate everyone joining us. We were planning to host this live in New York City, so you can imagine why we are now going virtual. So it's an experience for all of us. We'll get a chance for our experts to discuss how that has impacted their jobs and may impact data privacy and what we're doing here. So let's meet our speaker panel. Please welcome Debbie Reynolds. She is founder and CEO of Debbie Reynolds Consulting, known as the Data Diva. She is a world-renowned technologist, thought leader, internationally published author and advisor to corporations for data privacy, cyber data breach, and planning. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Sorry I couldn't be with you guys in New York, but I am happy to be here virtually. Thank you for joining us. With us also is Chuck Kellner. Chuck is a sales executive at Everlaw. E-discovery expert, Chuck brings innovation and positive impact to Amlaw 100 and Fortune 500 litigation clients. Kurt, thank you. And thank you, Olivia and Jane, who put a lot of work into preparing this, and Julia Sweeney for inviting me. I'm just devastated, Debbie and Mark and Bernard, who couldn't join us today, that I don't get to meet you in person with everybody who's attending in New York, but hopefully someday soon we will. Fantastic. Thanks, Chuck. And then also with us, Mark Williams, who is an associate attorney at the law firm of White and Case. Mark advises companies on data privacy and cybersecurity issues, including acquisitions, financing, and security offerings. Thank you, Kurt. Good to be here. I look forward to serving on the panel today, speaking with Chuck and Debbie. And I, like everyone else, hate that we cannot all meet in person. But given the circumstances, this seems like the best course of action. So with that, I'd like to start off before we dive into things, just giving the audience background on how each of you became the experts that you are and a little bit of your professional journey. So Debbie, if I can come back to you. I am a data geek. I started my technology life in library science, moved on to electronic evidence, and then segued into data privacy. So for me, data flow issues are very interesting to me. But over the last five or six years, because I worked a lot with Fortune 500 companies, on e-discovery or data flow issues worldwide, some of those companies started coming to me directly, asked me about data privacy. So this is a little bit before, about a year or so before the GDPR was fully established or went into effect in 2016. So from there, I would say probably nine out of 10 contacts that I had were asking me about data privacy. So it seemed like it was the right move to make for me to transition fully in that space. And I really very much enjoy advising clients. Again, I'm a tech geek, so I work with people not only on policies, procedures, the way that they build teams, but very much on the technical and operational sides of how they do their work. I've been very excited to be very involved with software companies that are developing tools in this space and help them advise on things like design, privacy by design, and things like that. So again, happy to be here. Excellent. Chuck, tell us a little bit about your journey. Thanks, Kurt. 
my background includes work at an NLAW 100 firm developing litigation support and regulatory response systems back in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So I'm a liberal arts person. I have a lot of natural curiosity, improvise at the piano. And moving from smaller solo practice in the West to basically a new gig economy in the East, moving around from firm to firm, I found myself in projects with workrooms with large numbers of boxes where people were coding documents to worksheets. And we had old IBM PC XT machines that we were building databases from scratch. I embraced the technology and learned something new. And in the course of my career since then, have pushed both the willing and the unwilling every step of the way to develop and to find new technologies to make the work that is time-consuming or expensive or tedious or, or error-prone to find the technology tools that make these things easier. This allows me to spend my time with clients on site, talking about what they do, helping them assess their data for litigation regulatory responses and identification of materials for privacy concerns, and then finding the use cases for the technology. And Mark, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So my journey into the privacy world has been varied. I graduated undergrad with a business degree and worked on Capitol Hill for a while. When I would say most folks on the Hill were not really well-versed in privacy, it wasn't an issue that was at the forefront at the time. I learned a lot about the legislative process, which has helped me in the past few years as these laws have developed. I also started a a company where I wrote a piece of software, and I think we had a, a lot of cybersecurity concerns with that software because it was dealing with presidential campaigns and Capitol Hill offices and that sort of thing, which was an interesting experience. And then I worked at an AMLAW 100 firm uh, in the the finance department where I I got kind of a a sense of how the sausage was made at a firm. And then since joining White & Case, I've worked in the data privacy and cybersecurity group where we advise companies on not only compliance, but also on reacting to regulatory inquiries. And I'd say it's really interesting to see what companies are trying to accomplish and from a data privacy standpoint, from a business standpoint, and then figure out how we get them from point A to point B. And I'd say that my background informs all that. And I very much enjoy what I do. Fantastic. And I think that is an excellent way to frame this. How do we get from point A to point B? But before we get to that, we have all been impacted. The pandemic the coronavirus. And as I mentioned, that has changed the way that this podcast, this information is coming to you, changed how all of us in our jobs, how we're working, how we're addressing these issues. And as we're doing our sound check, we were just talking about in the records and information community, now working virtually, the ability to access information becomes critical, and it will also presumably have an impact on the data privacy and other requirements as we are really forced to use technology, which may have been a innovation. Today, it becomes necessity. So maybe before we get into our scheduled topics, if each of you don't mind just reflecting a little bit on the new paradigm that we're in with the remote workforce and how that impacts our jobs today. And Debbie, would love to get your thoughts. Ah, ladies first, huh? It's been a monumental shift, a mind shift, especially 
for me as a technologist, as someone who's been preaching for decades, literally, about being able to embrace technology, it's interesting to see how things have shifted and changed on a dime. The one beneficial thing that has happened is that it sort of proved the concept that people can work from home. And also we're sort of rethinking the way we've done things, especially doing things remotely. And the technology is there. The technology is mature. It's been there for a while with e-learning and uh, doing webinars and some work from home. And some people are in varying stages of maturity in that journey. But this pandemic has had us have to grow up really fast and really step to that challenge. So I'm glad to see that people are really leveraging and flexing this technology and that we're able to still be able to work and do the things that are important in our lives and also really be able to leverage technology in the way that we've always known it to be helpful. That's a great way to put it. We've had to grow up fast. I think that literally on a global level, we're all experiencing the same challenges at the same time and having to go through that rapid growth curve. Chuck, what are your thoughts? I'm an experienced work from home sort of individual. I've been doing it for a long time. I'm either home working in my home office, playing doorman for the dog, or I'm on the road with a suitcase and a briefcase. And so a few of the things that I've learned is watch out for the physical security of your devices. If you're working at home and you're not used to doing that, you might be working on your own device and remoting into the network at work. Make sure that your device is encrypted. Make sure that it's secure. Make sure that your home network is secure, that you've got WPA or WPA2 encryption on your Wi-Fi network. You know, you may be flipping back and forth between work and personal stuff. Don't just click on stuff. Exercise the same kind of computer use hygiene as you would in the workplace. Probably the biggest vulnerabilities for things like like data breach and data privacy breach are the infiltration from clicking on something that could introduce malware into your environment. Be sensitive about mixing your data. If you're using the same device, don't mix your personal and your work data. Make sure that any remote devices that you have, that they're encrypted. And I think finally, it's a social thing. People who are working at home for the first time and the computer's right there and the phone is right there, you tend to work all the time. Don't work all the time. You know, separate your work life from your home life. Enjoy your family. Zoom with your friends and talk to them, not just your colleagues. Great advice. Mark, how about you? How do you see this impact? Sure. So I'd like to make two points. First, from the perspective of our law firm, I think we proved that an investment in a lot of this remote technology can really pay off. We have over 2,000 attorneys in over 30 countries. From the day I've gotten there, we've all been able to work from home. We have access to email. We take our laptops home and all that. Obviously, that's required an, an investment. If you put the time and the money in, you can absolutely make it work. The other point I wanted to make has to do with data privacy. And I think people need to remember that just because all of this other stuff is changing does not mean that data privacy laws are changing. The thing that businesses, I think, really need to be mindful of is as they rethink how they're doing business and as they change their business models, they need to remember that if they collected data, the privacy policy where they collected data still applies. So if they collected data for one use and they want to use that data for something else and it's not disclosed in their policy, they need to go back to those users and 
and ask them to use the data for another purpose. I think a lot of people, especially seeing in Silicon Valley, startups are shifting from business model A to business model B in response to what's going on in the economy right now. And as they do that, they need to remember their obligations to their users under U.S. law and under the GDPR. Very interesting. So we'll start off with our topics, but I think it's going to be very interesting timing because the paradigm shift that the pandemic is causing, not only to be be remote, as you mentioned, the impact on the use of technology, on data privacy, but what happens after this passes? What are the, the shifts and lasting impacts that we will see? The business world before this and the business world after this will probably be much different. So with that, Mark, what has changed since we spoke to you last on GDPR, CCPA, and the state laws? Bring us up to date. With the CCPA, we're still awaiting final regulations from the California Attorney General. As you may know, the California Consumer Privacy Act passed with a mandate to the Attorney General to produce some regulations that both implement parts of the law and also clarify some parts of the law. And mm-hmm. I think we're, we're now on draft four of the regulations, but they haven't been finalized yet which is interesting because the law becomes enforceable on July 1st. When they amended the first round of amendments to the CCPA, they said, okay, wait, there's a lot of ambiguity out here. Let's let the attorney general clarify some things. But until then, or until July 1st, whichever comes sooner, the law is not enforceable, but it is in effect. So between January 1st, and it's looking like it's going to be July 1st, The California Consumer Privacy Act, much like how the GDPR was, the California Consumer Privacy Act is in effect, but it can't really be enforced by the attorney general. The only section that is really enforceable right now is the data breach private right of action section. And we've seen one lawsuit so far, at least, cite that law. So we're still awaiting the regulations from California. So he's been pretty hard hit by the COVID virus. So we'll see when those come out. Further adding a wrinkle to this is the fact that the law may be enforceable, but then the regulations aren't in effect. (laughs) A lot of businesses are turning to us and saying, okay, well, what do we do? Do we invest resources in becoming compliant with something without the regulations and then having to pivot once the regulations come out? So we've been working with businesses on that. And then some legislation at the state level has been percolating and dying. dying, legislation. Yeah. Well, state houses work a lot. Well, actually, they tend to work on even a more abbreviated schedule than Congress does. So every bills in Congress die at the end of that Congress, right? So at the end of 2019, all the bills that didn't pass will just kind of go away, right? And so then the next Congress, you start fresh. State houses are very much the same way with some wrinkles. The Washington State Privacy Act is a good example. So the state Senate in Washington State passed a very comprehensive state privacy bill, and they did so almost unanimously. It was the closest thing we've seen so far to the GDPR from an actual viable piece of legislation standpoint. You had a right to correction, which the CCPA doesn't have. You have a right to opt out, not as expansive as the GDPR, but there's some opt-out right. That Washington state bill actually went even further than the GDPR in some ways and actually will be pretty burdensome on businesses. Interesting thing is, though, it went to the state house. The state house added a private right of action 
that said, okay, if you're a Washington State resident and a business misused your data that's covered by this bill, you can sue them in court, which was a huge sticking point for businesses. That's a sticking point for businesses in Washington State, in California, and in Washington, D.C., as we can talk about. The House passed a version of the bill with that private right of action, and the Senate said, oh, no way. The State House and Senate both adjourned, and so that legislation is no more. And I'm sure they'll, when the legislature reconvenes, I assume next year, you'll see another round of this. But they couldn't come to one mind on that one. The state senator in, in New York State also introduced a very, I would say, aggressive privacy bill. That did not ever leave committee, but it did show that there's an interest in legislation like this. It's been very well covered in the media. One thing that legislation introduced that you'll probably start seeing more and more of is this idea of a data fiduciary, which means that essentially if a company receives data from a person, they have obligation to use that data in the best interest of the consumer that that data relates. That's a tough concept for businesses. I think you'll probably, that's a red line much further than I think even a private right of action. You would see a lot of pushback in that regard. And then on the federal level, there have been several data privacy bills introduced. None of them have gone anywhere. There have been some senators that have been getting together and trying to hash out a bipartisan piece of legislation, but that hasn't gone anywhere as well. It hasn't gone anywhere because the senators can't agree on the private right of action issue. A lot of people on the left want to see people be able to sue. People on the right are more inclined to see enforcement from attorney generals and the FTC or something like that. So there's a lot going on for sure. It sounds like it. Thank you for that update. Olivia, let me turn it over to you. As Mark said, it seems to be like a lot of these things that were ideas or laws that were in play are now actually starting to move into something that is now in action and actually going to be able to be you're going to be held accountable in court. So Chuck, you've mentioned to me before that data privacy is moving from theoretical to practical. So I want to know if you could kind of elaborate on that. Like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Sure, Olivia, thank you. And I'm wondering if I could just ask a question out of turn and ask Mark a question. With the Fed talking about a potential privacy law, California's coming online quickly. We've got the GDPR and other states talking about it. In terms of what clients should do, are you advising them to rise to the highest common factor and figure out policies and procedures that could encompass all of these or most of these as they come online or to try to be able to respond here and there to different kinds of privacy regimes? That's a great question, Chuck. I would say it very much depends on the business and how they operate. Businesses that we work with that are truly worldwide. We advise them, and obviously, ultimately, it's a business decision, but we advise them that they'll probably save a lot of money and have a more streamlined compliance program if they go to the highest common denominator, like if they look at GDPR for the rights of access and portability and all of that sort of thing. Most of the businesses we've worked with at that level will go with a hybrid approach where they'll give consumers rights of access, portability, all of the easy stuff at the highest level, right? But then... When it comes to the actual restrictions on the use of data, they tend to focus on more limiting that to the, the areas where those laws can be enforced. If you're dealing with a startup that's only operating in a few states or a business that's only operating in the U.S., 
then we generally advise them to either take a state-by-state approach, which basically is looking like California and everywhere else, or doing that kind of highest common denominator approach, but within just the jurisdictions where they operate, if that makes sense. It does. And the net result is that we all have new policies. And I think our challenge is to know what they are and to make sure that we follow them. So from a practical standpoint, it's important to discuss at a whole company level and then an individual department level, a team level, what these policies are and what's your individual role to adhere to them. And it's important to be able to audit the policies. When it comes to regulation, private right of action, it would be bad enough if you don't have a policy, but it's even worse if you've got a policy and then you fail to enforce it and you don't follow it. So you've got to have a, a policy rollout as well as a an auditing and enforcement um, of those policies as well. I'm sure Debbie's going to talk a little bit about how policies might alter your records policy, your other withhold policies and those sorts of things and the things that need to happen that maybe conflict or overlap with existing corporate and, and management policies. But then going forward with some of the new things for CCPA and GDPR, each company has to make decisions about how you're going to respond to regulatory requests, how you're going to identify the data that is subject to the privacy regulations. We're really not allowed to be just deer in the headlights because there's some uncertainty, for example, what's going to happen in California or maybe next year in Washington. We still have the obligation to step up, control the data responsibly, respond to consumers or customers' requests, employees' requests to respond at the highest level. I think most importantly, the biggest challenge for us on a practical basis is to learn how long it takes to do things and how much those things cost. Learn how long it takes to identify and find and retrieve personally identifiable information to be able to separate out mixed PII from say the the data subject access request, identify confidentiality and privilege in that information and figure out what those costs are. These activities, they're not, for most companies, are revenue-generating activities, so it's going to be harder to get the budget for those, and it's going to be important to be able to quantify what your workflows are going to be and how much they're going to cost and what resources you're going to need. Now is the time to make sure that you have the budgeting for that. Great. Thanks, Chuck. That's a good segue. So, Debbie, as an advisor, what groundwork should have been done by companies already? Good question. One thing that I advise companies on, obviously, as we all talked about, there's a lot going on, not only in the U.S., but internationally, about a lot of these data privacy laws being passed. And one thing that I always tell clients, instead of feeling like you have to lurch from one law to another, most of these laws have some or all of the same basic principles that you need to really think about. So one of them is that individuals have rights and that there needs to be some transparency there about how you handle customer or individual data that you're being given or that you're using. You need to be able to have a purpose or a reason for having data in the first place. Whoever's handling data, whether it's you or a third party on your behalf, there has to be a mechanism set for accountability of how that data is handled and who handles it and for what purpose. There are obviously, especially in the U.S., there's a lot of mixing and matching bills that have information related to not only data privacy, but cybersecurity. So cybersecurity and data privacy, not the same, but 
they have a symbiotic relationship. So we're seeing a lot of mix and match of that and a lot of laws, especially legislation coming out of the U.S. And then the data retention, whether that be a consumer asking for a change, as we were talking about in this Washington state proposed law, or a customer asking for a deletion, which would be like in the CCPA or the GDPR. So I try to tell companies, whether it's an established company, a new company, a company that's developing software, coming up with a process and procedure, if you're thinking about data privacy along those lines and those themes, that will get you part of the way of where you need to go. And then as you're applying or as you're looking at laws, you just need to sort of tweak and fine tune it based on the particularities of things that you have to comply with in terms of who needs to be contacted, what information you need to collect. I feel like companies, the hardest part of doing this or complying with the data privacy laws, and I think one of the speakers, I think it was you, Chuck, who said this, is definitely getting the budget because it's finding the information is, to me, the hardest part of it, whether locating the information, being able to roll it up into some intelligible report that you can send to a consumer, and also deleting information. So most corporations, the way they store data is like Santa's workshop. So there are lots of data silos within corporations. And because they were never really built to respond to consumer requests in the way that data privacy is being rolled out now, it really is a huge change in the way that companies operate and the way that they need to actually tackle that problem. And this is, to me, this is a problem that's been had for for decades, and it goes around things like information governance, how you store your data, why do you have it in the first place. And I feel like data privacy, especially with the laws that have things like private rights of action, or they have huge fines, I feel like those are the things that really woke the world up about data privacy laws. Because data privacy isn't new. A lot of these laws or regulations or even sort of best practices in some ways have been around a bit. But I feel as though because people are pressing to do things like have private rights of action or governments want to do these fines is really gotten C-suite attention. So hopefully that will be a lever. And I, I think I'm seeing this now. It's more of a lever now, more so than just information governance for companies to really dig deep and try to get themselves on a program that works for them. And Rome wasn't built in a day either. So you can't just, let's say you didn't do anything and then all of a sudden you just decide, okay, oh my God, I got a consumer request. Now I have to do all this stuff. If you are starting now, it will be hard for you to respond to a request that you got today. Hopefully people have been taking these laws seriously and I feel like they have, especially the bigger companies, but there's still a long way to go because Again, we're trying to almost turn a ship on a dime, so to speak, because organizations are not, their data structure and the way that they store things, just not built this way. So it's going to take a while to get where we need to be. Absolutely. Thank you, Debbie. You all have kind of shared about how these practical implementations look in real life and how these policies are now starting to come into play. But there are a lot of barriers to getting traction within the organizations to start to comply with these policies. And so, Mark, one of the biggest ones is how do companies, they don't want to dedicate 
resources proactively. They don't want to put it in the budget. They don't want to put people on it because they're going to say, these policies aren't in play yet. We'll handle it when we can be held accountable for it. And so how do you recommend that companies start to justify that cost and be proactive about being compliant before these policies come fully into play? Well, I can tell you this. I think it still can be a challenge to get money in the budget for a lot of these data privacy efforts. It's a lot better than it was two years ago. I think when the, the GDPR was coming into effect, there were a lot of companies looking around saying, oh, what's data privacy? Even you saw that a little bit with the CCPA, but I think over the past few months, we have not spoken to any client that's saying, oh no, what is all this and what do we need to be doing? I think more and more companies are starting to understand that data privacy is an issue and that they have data privacy obligations. I think there's also been a, this feeds into why businesses should take this seriously. There's been a a shift over the past few years where the public actually completely understand data privacy. They are beginning to value data privacy. And because they value data privacy, that means that they expect a lot of businesses to do so too. So you see data breaches being reported much more widely than they used to. You see a lot of consumers caring about how specific businesses are using their data. And that can translate into sales dollars, right? So actually having clean data privacy practices can help the top line growth, right? Or at least prevent it from being harmed. So I think it's important for businesses to remember that their data privacy obligations can absolutely have an effect on the money they're bringing in the door. But also from a more proactive standpoint, I think we we emphasize to businesses that the CCPA isn't the last data privacy law that's coming down the pike, that there are going to be more. And they can use the GDPR and CCPA and other laws as opportunities to really build a robust data privacy program in-house so that's flexible, that can change over time. And I think, as Debbie mentioned, Santa's workshop, I think one thing we're really encouraging businesses to do is get a good understanding of what data they actually possess and how they use it and how they can find it and how that data interacts with each other. Because that not only makes it easier for businesses to respond to these access requests and all that stuff, it also makes it a lot easier for the businesses to comply with these really strict data privacy requirements that are no doubt coming, much like the GDPR, right? At the end of the day, the message is, listen, a lot of your users are going to care about these issues. And also, the more you invest up front, the less you're going to have to invest down the road. Thanks, Mark. I can't help but uh, reflect on what we're seeing with the pandemic, the video surfacing of Bill Gates and others warning that this type of virus was something we should be preparing for and the importance of preparation. So I feel a certain association that we are all warning that data privacy is important, GDPR is real, and there's preparation, but budgets and practical issues are challenges. So Debbie, one thing that is uh, practical is getting baseline coverage as a starting point. Right. In terms of baseline coverage as a starting point, I think that companies who haven't yet got the memo should know this is the way the future will be. (laughs) 
this is not an event like Y2K. We heard that a lot a while back. This is just the way the business is. We're even hearing from people, I think the head of Google or someone else, have made a big keynote speech a few months back, and I can't remember which, I don't know if it was Facebook or Apple or Google, whoever it was, the CEO said, the future is private. Privacy has to be baked into almost anything that we do because there's so much data being generated or accumulated in all things. I tell people, you have a cell phone in your pocket and every step that you take is recording something new about you somewhere that's being recorded and cataloged someplace. So there's just so much data out there now that was not there before. So people need to think about this not as... Again, not as an event, but as sort of the way things are going. And then I feel like, especially in legal, it's been a situation where companies have been digital pack rats in some ways, thinking, well, let's keep this data because we may need it in the future. That goes counter to data privacy legislation around the world where they're saying, if you don't really need the data or you don't have a real reason to have it, you should get rid of it and you may have to actually go back and collect it down the line if you actually do need it again. So that's another mind shift that I think that people need to really get behind. In terms of how people move forward in this new world, as someone else had mentioned earlier, this is the way things are going to be. Privacy is not going to go away, even though especially in this particular time with the pandemics and things, we know the governments have extraordinary powers that they can put in place in the case of a public emergency. But that also does not mean that data privacy rules will go away, especially for corporations. And so Chuck, how then, so if a company does get their budget, they do get people on it. A lot of the ways that companies are tackling these data privacy problems are through technology. So how can existing technology be leveraged to tackle both current and future data privacy regulations? Thanks. So before I talk about existing technology, I want to talk about existing people that are already in place in most of your organizations. I see job ads out there for um, what I would have to call unicorns. I want a data privacy expert that could rewrite my company's global privacy and then build all the training programs, rewrite the records information management policy, enforce it across every business unit across the globe and audit it. That's more than one job. Same thing on the cybersecurity side. It's more than one job. A lot of people in our audience have people in IT, in the business units, in security and compliance, who can step up to fulfill portions of those roles. But it's important to build an interdisciplinary team. You're going to need Mark Williams and Debbie Reynolds to provide strategic and tactical advice on what kind of team to build and what should the roles be and how can some of those roles be bifurcated or leveraged in order to be able to do that. But don't think that there's one person who can do it all in any of those silos. When it comes to existing technologies, if you've got an info links and you can track across your file storage systems and your electronic storage systems, you're a step ahead. These are tools that give you some search and some visibility into your data stores and where the data privacy hotspots might be in your data collections. Your Office 365 tools give you elements of searchability in your email and in your enterprise search, particularly if you move things, for example, to SharePoint. 
If you haven't, you might have existing search technologies on your file shares if you haven't yet moved to some different form of enterprise search and storage. Those are existing technology tools that are going to help you find your data privacy, your PII hotspots. And you can use these to identify and secure and set new rules around handling and access to those. One of the more, I think, complicated examples that's from probably the recent past is, for example, pharmaceutical and medical device companies used to have MedWatch adverse event reporting applications that contained all sorts of patient narratives or subject narratives that had all sorts of PAI contained in those full text narratives. And when they found that they had to answer, say, litigation requests or regulatory requests, they had a huge review and redaction job to do. So they reworked those existing tools into tools in which they had metadata fields that separately held the PII so that they could easily find and redact it. And then the textual information then became not so hard to review and redact. So there's an example of a way to take an existing system and adapt it to the new requirements. Absolutely. And Chuck, you mentioned finding the right person and the job description. So maybe I'll open this to the panel. How do you find a person with this skill set to assist the organization? What are their titles? Where do they exist? What would you look for? Well, this is Debbie. That's a loaded question, I would say. So there, there isn't one person, there is no Frankenstein monster that does all these things in one person, as we said. So I feel as though data privacy, it does require a multidisciplinary approach. It requires people that know how to work across different business units to be able to communicate, manage projects, know what they know and know what they don't know, being able to reach out and be able to sort of carve out their areas of expertise, but also be able to raise their hand when they see a gap to where they can fill it. So for me, I always look for people who have the aptitude to really know how to communicate very well, manage projects, Again, I'm a technologist at heart, so I can get down in the, the nitty gritty or we could talk ivory tower if you want. Being able to, to cover those bases, you need a multitude of people. So what I tell people, especially if you feel like you may have HR people writing these job descriptions for this perfect candidate that doesn't exist, like, for example, someone with 20 years of cloud experience. We know that doesn't exist, right? Because cloud hasn't been used for 20 years. So a lot of it is sort of getting over people's preconceived notions of what's out there and being able to really answer what their true needs are. So if they're part of their true need is, for example, a lot of companies have a lot of legacy data or proprietary databases and data stores. They may need a very specific person to help them that has knowledge of those skills or has some historical knowledge of their system. Them. But there are so many technical silos within companies. There are knowledge silos. There are leadership silos. So being able to have people that can help bridge or connect those people together, or those systems together is really important. And you may have to break that down into its component parts to be able to build a team that's really going to help you move forward. And Mark, I'm interested because you have two perspectives on this. One, where would you look for this within your firm? someone internally, and if you were asked by a client, what might you advise them? Within the firm, the firm is, is lucky in that it has a lot of data privacy experts that do client work. And so the law firm will just turn around and ask them 
for advice when dealing with firm-related data privacy and cybersecurity issues, which is great. But we also have within the firm a cybersecurity team within IT, and then we have a DPO, a data privacy officer, within the general counsel's office. So I have information governance folks all spread out, and I don't know to what degree they coordinate, but I'm, I'm sure that they, they do. When looking at a business, I think the thing that, to go back to the Frankenstein monster point, the thing that concerns us is when we hear, oh, no, it's cool, we have a guy that does all our data privacy stuff. That's concerning, right? Because nobody unless you're a startup that's that's just now getting running, nobody can do everything, right? So I think from our perspective, we look to see or we encourage businesses to devote resources to their data privacy and cybersecurity obligations that are commensurate with how much data they have, how much money is coming in the door. And I think going back to points earlier, sometimes it's hard to wrangle money in the budget but I think if you ask over time, a lot of businesses, we see that money starts appearing, the more the start sort of thing starts entering the news and it's on the mind of the C-suite folks. Perfect. So Chuck, given the, the role, share what the workflow is. How does someone go about building a process that works? Conceptually, it's important to be able to find the PII, to be able to find the personally identifiable information. There's five steps here. I'm going to just toss them out quickly and then run through each of them in a little bit more detail. Find the PAI. You've got to assess for mixed content. And I'll talk a little bit more about what that is. Then you've got to be able to filter or redact information in order to be able to respond. And then you have to compile and package and deliver the response either to a regulator or a, a data subject who might request it. And then you have to audit and control what your response was in order to be able to answer regulatory requests or to be able to do follow-ups. So for finding the data, you have to find personal information in all the different ways and all the different sources of data that you might have in your business environment. Structured data, which might be databases, and that might be easy, but it also may be multiple sources. And then there's unstructured data, which I could generally define as sort of the vast stores of emails and files that are rich in text. But you can't disinclude things like pictures, for example, and audio files, images and audio files, which may contain personal information, but are a little bit more difficult to search with certain kinds of tools. Assessing for mixed content, you need to find that, for example, the data subjects own personal information, but the mixed content includes the presence of other people's personal information in that data that you may have to trap for and remove. And then things that might be privileged, attorney-client privileged, attorney-work product privileged. There might be an underlying litigation or a dispute. There's information that's confidential or trade secret that the data subject might be involved in, but you don't necessarily have to disclose or you've got certain rights to be able to protect or content that's beyond the scope. So once you've identified the superset of that individual's PII, you have to assess for and then be able to subset out with some filtering and redaction tools to be able to subset out things that are privileged or confidential or other people's PII. The fourth point, you've got to be able to compile and package and deliver it. So somebody who wants to know where do you have my information and what is that information and how are you storing it, you've got to provide the content itself or at least 
some context of that content. And then you've got to provide some transparency, both under GDPR and we think to some extent CCPA, some extent of how it's stored, what its retention controls are, who's the custodian of that record, and then provide the individual the rights for deletion or editing or in the GDPR, the right to be forgotten. And then for auditing, you have to be able to prove that you complied with that request in the time that it took to do it and maintain that record for the required length of time in case there's a follow-up request. The workflow, it's fairly substantial. It's fairly detailed. There are tools around the house that exist to help with that. But these are the sorts of things that every organization for in any sort of new modern privacy regime that they have to prepare for a workflow like that. Perfect. Thanks, Chuck. That was very helpful. And so, Debbie, like Chuck gave us some really helpful practical implementations, but from a consulting perspective, how should an organization approach finding and working through this process? There is a, a roll up your sleeves element to this. I mean, you have to get really deep down into the weeds to really know your data. And I feel like a lot of companies really don't know their data. They don't know what they have. They don't know why they had it. So for me, a lot of my initial work with companies is to ask why. Let's look at your databases. Let's look at your data stores. Let's look in these silos. And then you look a little bit deeper. And then, of course, sometimes people have like an immediate issue that they need to resolve. Let's say, for instance, a regulator has contacted them. They've had a data breach. They're getting these data subject access requests. Those are definitely top of mind if they have it and they want to make sure that they're complying and being able to find data. But when we really get down to the nitty gritty of things, we're asking, why are you storing social security numbers in an unencrypted fashion? Do you even need this information? So not every problem that people have data privacy is going to require software. Obviously, you want to automate as much as you possibly can to make sure that people are working to their best ability, not churning hours, doing things that are inefficient. But technology will only take you so far. So some of it is really rethinking what you're storing and why you're storing it. Some of it may be as simple as this is not data that you need. Maybe remove it out of a database, seal that field in some way. Some of this stuff has to do with access controls as well. Who has access to what data? What are they using it for? So a lot of it is really rethinking the way that you're storing data and why you have stuff. And my best advice or my first advice to companies has to do with getting rid of stuff that you don't need. Like, why do you need this stuff? So if there is data that you have that you don't need, you don't have any reason to have it, that type of spring cleaning goes a long way so that you're not wasting a lot of time looking through things that may not be important. So this is a effort where you have to attack it from a lot of different points of view or a lot of different perspectives, but it definitely can happen. You definitely need high-level empowerment or high-level buy-in to be able to push that down with an organization, but you need smart people who work on these systems from a day-to-day basis to be able to tell you where the gaps are, where are the inefficiencies. Have them tell you what the problems are so that you can help them be able to find ways to shore up your privacy program. So Mark, from a legal perspective, there's sort of two sides of this. How are law firms preparing to advise and defend their clients? Or on the other side, 
how are they pursuing charges for organizations that don't have processes in place? Sure. So from a defense standpoint, it's, it's something we do at White and Case. I think things are, as far as process goes, things will continue as they were. There have been FTC investigations in the past. There have been attorney general investigations in the past, and those will continue to happen. Just the underlying laws will shift. But the lesson remains the same, which is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It is nearly always better. I can't think of a circumstance which it is not better to have done what you needed to do in the data privacy world and not had to have a regulatory finding or enforcement action against you. <laughs> so having your house in order is always the best way to go. Now, a lot of times regulators will turn and say, oh, we're, we're interested in what you're doing X, Y, and Z. We've heard reports of you doing A, B, or C. And it's always great for us to be able to turn around and tell the regulator, oh, thank you for asking about A. It actually turns out that that's not what's happening at all. This is what's happening and we're compliant with the law. It was great hearing from you, right? <laughs> from a pursuing action standpoint, I think things could very much change a private right of action. It is given to consumers in these state or federal data privacy laws. Right now, we're continuing to see that it tends to be difficult for folks to pursue data privacy violations in court under existing laws. There are absolutely exceptions to that. And I think judges and what we call the common law starting to understand that consumers can be harmed or come to believe that consumers can be harmed from some of these data privacy breaches. But the real paradigm shift is going to come when slash if consumers are given this private right of action. So you guys have talked a lot about what can be done, what has been done, how to approach the problems that we have now, but there's still a lot of work left to do. And so I wanted to kind of know, Mark, what are the criticisms? Like what's still lacking? It's always good for attorneys when there are more laws, right? Because more laws mean more work. But the thing that I would say is lacking right now, and uh, especially the CCPA, is clarity. There is tons of ambiguity in that law. And regulations, as they're coming out, are clarifying a lot of those issues, but a lot of issues will remain. For example, it's not clear that the California Attorney General always has the authority to make the regulations that he's making. What I mean is, obviously, he can promulgate regulations, but the scope of those regulations maybe go beyond, in certain instances, what he's allowed to do under the law. But I think from a business perspective, it's very hard to comply with something that you don't understand, which is a good point to segue to the to what may be coming. And I hate to continue to beat this drum. If uh, a private right of action is included in a lot of these data privacy bills, that's going to cause businesses problems, not because they'll have to defend themselves from lawsuits. That's obviously an issue, but because the rough edges of these bills will be sanded down in the courtroom. And that is a very risky, expensive way to go about figuring out how a private piece of legislation works. So I'd say at the end of the day, from our perspective, clarity would be the best thing that we could ask for. And that's going to come over time through regulations. It'll come through regulatory actions and guidance, but it may come through legislatures going back and amending and refining the, the bills that they've already passed. And we saw that with the CCPA, right? The CCPA passed very quickly in response to a ballot initiative. 
and it's since been revised a handful of times. There are still some things in the law that are difficult to follow, but I think we'll figure out over time, again, through regulation and regulatory action and maybe even courtroom, where the lines are, right? But I think what our clients don't want to see is a situation where they have to go into court to defend something when they're doing their, the best they can to comply with the law as they believe it's written. What one thing which will be tricky, especially with the CCPA, well, two things. One is, and I advise clients about this as well, because there is frustration. The law is confusing. Even for people who do it every day, the CCPA is not like really easy. I feel like it's prescriptive in ways that maybe the GDP PR was not as prescriptive. And it's tougher, I feel like, a bit of information for people to get their arms around. But also, I feel like we're going to get in a situation where companies are going to be on the defensive to prove a, a negative. <laughs> so you may have a customer that, or a group of customers that say, you did this, and you have to sort of fight your way out of that corner by saying, no, well, we don't collect this type of data or we don't do this type of XYZ. So that in and of itself is sure is going to be a frustration for companies as they're working on these laws. One thing I am advising people about CCPA, especially because there's still some cake baking happening here, the laws currently is not going to get bigger and these revisions that are possibly going to happen is probably going to get smaller. So a company that is complying with the law as it was January 1st, even if there are alterations or changes down the pike, you're probably in the, still in the best position than someone who's sort of taking a wait-and-see attitude because it takes a long time to ramp up and do all the things that are required within the CCPA to comply with the law. So being able to have something, some basic things that you're doing already will put you way ahead of someone who's kind of waiting around to see what's going to be the final way that the bill will shake out. That's a good opportunity to talk about regulatory enforcement of the CCPA and how how companies maybe can do that. Because even if the law goes into effect, there's a 30-day cure period under the CCPA for violations, right? So the, the California Attorney General can come to a business and say, hey, you're doing this wrong. You have 30 days to fix it or we're going to pursue a fine. Businesses shouldn't look at that and say, oh, we're good until the Attorney General knocks on our door because as Debbie said, building a data privacy regime within your company, building those processes out, making sure they work technically, all that stuff takes time. That being said, what we have advised companies on, because there are a few areas of the CCPA that are still kind of up in the air due to the regulations not yet being out, is listen, get as close as you can on these issues, and then have a plan in place to implement these last few steps once the regulations come out. But I think I agree with Debbie, if a business is sitting around on its hands right now, waiting for everything to be in a nice, neat little bow, they're going to have a, a struggle getting compliant in time. Excellent. So Chuck, given your background providing solutions and leveraging technology, how can technology help address these gaps? Kurt, so before I address that, uh, just another cross question to Mark. So you talked about the problem with independent right of action and what the cost could be there. And right now, we don't have to worry until the regulators come and call. But with GDPR, there's the data subject access request that's 
individually driven, individually motivated consumers, employees, all kinds of people can do that. There's a DSART provision also in CCPA that there's probably pent up demand to start exercising that once there's an enforcement behind it. And we've heard tell of even some weaponizing data subject access requests to put companies through the burden of finding and responding. And I'm wondering in terms of the cost and burden of that and what you're hearing from clients, what, what's the result of that? And I can talk then maybe about some of the technology tools to address. Sure. So thank you for bringing that up. As you pointed out, the DSAR idea has been around in Europe for a while. We're not sure what the appetite for those will be in the United States and in California. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see. I think the attorney general and their regulations has been mindful of the fact that those can really be expensive for a business to comply with. They've said things like, well, if you only store things in text and you don't routinely access those things, and there are a couple of other requirements in there, then you don't actually have to respond to a data subject access request with that data. And I think the idea there is that businesses shouldn't have to go through freeform text and pick out all of the personal identifiable information relating to this one person and then give it to that person. And then businesses are fearful that if they missed a few steps that the California Attorney General is going to come knocking on their door, right? We've tried, again, to, to go back to a point of a few uh, questions ago, we've tried to really encourage businesses to, to centralize to the degree they can a lot of these processes across geographies that they can streamline these responses. Sometimes that can be difficult depending on where the data is. But at the end of the day, we just don't know what the appetite is for these DSARs under the CCPA. And I think companies are going to do their best when the time comes. What we're seeing for data subject access requests and the GDPR is what started out as one and two and maybe five requests to now occasionally 40 or 60 requests coming in all at once. And there's, I guess, somewhere between 30 and 40 days to respond. There isn't even a request anymore that it be in writing. There's no cost justification for refusing or pushing back. And so in the GDPR context, it's often quite a challenge to make those responses on time with some of the existing tools out there. What we've seen in terms of tools that are helpful is the ability to search across the enterprise quickly in things like email stores, in unstructured data files, and also in, in databases. So the ability to bring all that information into a full text search area and to do it quickly is important to identify where there might be personal information in, for example, images, photos, so on and so forth, in audio and video files, to be able to transcribe those automatically and to be able to search those for the PII. If you sort of picture this Venn diagram, you've got the, the universe of PII that relates to a particular data subject. How to draw an intersecting circle there and tease out of it the PII that relates to other people, confidential and privileged information. So having the ability to search within a data set and to, to highlight it so that either with machine learning or with eyes on, you can tease that information out. In certain environments, you need to be able to automatically translate or be able to search in foreign languages and find the personally identifiable information in multiple languages, sometimes in the same data set. And then 
the ability to compile what you're going to deliver as a response in a way that is easy to consume for the data requester, whether it's an employee or a departed employee, a consumer, to be able to give it to them in a form that they can open it and read it and have the transparency and the cover sheets included in it. And then the ability using the technology to be able to scale that response in case you have to do 10 or 20 or 40 of those at once, and then preserve the information that you have reviewed and delivered to be able to answer the regulator's requests. Thanks, Chuck. That was a really thorough response. And I think that's helpful because understanding how to use technology and how to even address these huge problems is something that can be very overwhelming and daunting. Debbie, you gave some really good advice about how to stay persistent and consistent during this process because the people tasked to get a company compliant. So what advice do you have for people who are in these roles? How do you recommend that they just approach their job every day and don't get overwhelmed? Well, it can be overwhelming. So being able to try to have a proactive approach, if you possibly can, when you get a request or if you're, as one of the commenters, I believe it was you, Chuck, said, companies that are getting multiple requests at one time, it can definitely be overwhelming and you definitely don't want to do a hair on fire type running around thing when you have those types of requests. But hopefully if you have a good process in place or let's say you don't have a good process in place, as you're replying or as you're trying to comply with the requests, you should be developing a process or fine-tuning the process that you have previously so that the next time it comes around, it should be easier and easier for you to comply with these requests. Also, there may be some structural things in the way, whether it's a process or procedural thing or a technology issue that you come up with that has to be addressed so that these types of requests go smoothly in the future. So it's really important that you're iterating and you're improving every time that you go through this process because anything that you do to do this improvement will help you in the future. So I also advise clients, this is a marathon that you're going to run over and over and it's not a sprint. So anything that you do to put a process or procedure in place, to put some type of framework around how you're going to do this going forward in the future, you know, into infinity is the best approach. So you definitely don't want it to be a knee-jerk thing. You shouldn't be caught unaware that people will ask you for this information or their regulators are going to contact you because the best defense is a good offense, right? So you need to really get ahead of these issues as much as possible, but then pace yourself as you're going through all these steps. Make sure you're doing the right documentation and make sure people need to be trained. You need to make sure that's happening. And then you need to really be able to solidify what your process is, but be nimble enough to know that something may change in the future. Let's say you bring on a new piece of software or you bring in new people, you need to be able to roll them in or fold them into the process some way or and be willing and able and have enough foresight to adjust or tweak your process internally to be able to handle whatever those challenges are going forward in the future. Thanks, Debbie. That's fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. I want to thank our speakers, Debbie Reynolds, Chuck Kellner, and Mark Williams for their expert participation and insights. And that will do it for this episode of InfoLinks On The Record. 
If you enjoyed our show, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you have a few moments, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps listeners like you find our show. And if you want to keep up with the latest from InfoLinks, please follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. This is InfoLinks on the Record. Thank you so much for listening.